Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. From the feature staff at the Columbus Dispatch, this is Life in the 614. Hi, and welcome to Life in the 614, the official lifestyle podcast of the Features Department at the Columbus Dispatch, coming to you every Thursday. If it sounds like fun, we'll be talking about it. I'm Ryan Smith, Assistant Features Editor at the Dispatch, and today I'm a little worried about natural catastrophes. In the span of just a couple of weeks, we here in central Ohio have survived a polar vortex and a flood watch. If I wanted to run from my problems, I could join the fifth line 5K race at 10 a.m. Saturday outside Nationwide Arena, where Columbus Blue Jackets fans will swarm the arena district and walk away with a voucher for two tickets to select hockey games. Or I could sail away, but I should probably learn to fish first. Good thing the Columbus Fishing Expo will be at the Ohio Expo Center for a three-day event beginning Friday, full of seminars and gear to shop for. But ultimately, I'll probably just count my blessings. It could be worse, a lot worse, as in the flood of 1913 worse, a cataclysmic event that covered Franklinton in as much as 17 feet of water and killed more than 90 people in Columbus alone, and many more throughout the state. This week, Opera Columbus and Pro Musica Chamber Orchestra use that historical event as the starting point for a new opera named simply The Flood. In Friday, Saturday, and Sunday performances, the show traces the legacy of tragedy that follows the event for one fictional Franklinton family. Here to tell us more about the origins of the show and how this unique collaboration has all come together is Peggy Creadai, General and Artistic Director of Opera Columbus. Well, thanks for joining us today, Peggy. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. So most of us here in Columbus these days are focused on freezing temperatures. But back in 1913, there was a flood that became the worst natural catastrophe in the history of the city. That's right, yes. I'm wondering if you can tell our listeners a little bit about that, since most of them weren't here then, and also why you chose that as the subject matter for the opera. Sure. So the flood of 1913 went actually across the whole Midwest, but in Columbus in particular, it devastated Franklinton to the point where the capital of Columbus was supposed to be in Franklinton, and as a result, it moved up the hill. And for the longest time, Franklinton was left as it was after the flood, somewhat devastated. And then they build the new flood wall. And now over the last couple of years and currently, Franklinton is going over a complete transformation and rejuvenation. So a topic today about something that's happening in that part of the city is perfect timing, I think, as far as its relevance. So how we came up with the flood. Janet Chen, the other co-producer, co-commissioner on this project, she's with Pro Musica Chamber Orchestra. We knew we wanted to commission a new work together and we decided let's have it about the city that we're in. Let's tell the story of the audience Let's tell them their story and the history of where they live, something related to that. And so the best spot we could think of was let's go over to WOCU. They did the whole Columbus Neighborhoods programming, which was phenomenal. And we're like, no one knows the city from that angle better than WOSU at this point. And so we went over there and we talked about the different stories that they told about Columbus. And our question was, what is the most operatic 
situation. And by far, she's like the flood of 1913. (laughs) You got everything, the drama, the trauma, the characters that need to overcome and heal. Like it just, it's a great topic for opera because opera is so heightened in every level. I mean, it's on the edge of screaming. It's like screaming on pitch. (laughs) So everything that we do in opera, if it's really heightened, it's very suitable. So that's why we chose the flood. Who were some of the characters that you learned about as you started to uncover a little bit more about the flood? And I don't know, did any of them make it into the narrative of what you ended up putting together? So the characters in the opera are fictional. However, the librettist, Stephen Wadsworth, who wrote the story, did extensive research on Columbus and the people that lived here during that time and since that time, how they've been affected. So through all that research, there's so many particular stories and events. You know, there's stories of rescue and of devastation, even animals. Like it's, there are some very specific recorded events. And so those moments are taken into consideration as he told the story. So there's bits and pieces from real people that made it into the story. But a lot of the characters are from Stephen's own life. More than 90 people ended up dying as part of this tragedy when the levees fell, right, on the the west side of the Scioto River. And more were never found. So, yes, you're right. How did you guys end up putting this together as a narrative? What is the narrative of the opera itself? So that is all, Stephen. So the story that he wrote and then developed with Kareen, who wrote the music. So the story, he just had this idea in his mind about, you know, how can we tell a story about trauma and its effects from generation to generation to generation? And so he had this idea of having four different rooms on stage at the same time. And one is 1913. The next room is the next generation, 1940. The next is 1970. And the final room is 2000. 2014. And as the opera goes on, it's like a big mystery. At the end, you realize how all these people are connected, stemming from the tragic event of the flood. So it's really not about the flood as it is the effects of catastrophe, really, trauma. Well, that leads into my next question then, because this is a production that you're going to be taking on the road. It's going to be visiting other cities, even though it will be debuting here. That is my goal. So (laughs) what about it do you think will make it attractive and relevant to other places? You know, I get the question a lot. Why would anybody want to do it if it's about Columbus? And the truth is, Columbus is the backdrop. Yes, we're telling stories from people that lived here that we want people to connect with here. Just like, you know, La Boheme takes place in Paris. You know, we think, oh my gosh, we can never perform La Boheme outside of Paris. It's just, you know, I understand why people go there, but in the history of opera, we are performing things that are from everywhere. So the location is not an issue. The reason why I think it's universal, it it also talks about the African-American story through Columbus. It talks about mental health in a very specific way. And I guess how relationships really deepen from a tragic event. Everybody has that. Everybody has a story. They know somebody in just about every situation in that room. And so it's a universal theme. Love, tragedy, redemption, all those things. 
What do you think that people will be able to take away from this? Modern audiences who have recently lived through events such Mm -hmm. as Katrina and Houston and all of these other modern catastrophes. Yes. Something that we look back now, we think, wow, that was such a significant event. Unfortunately, it has become a more and more universal event that we're seeing and that we're hearing about in modern day technology. So that you're absolutely right. Like everybody has, right? We've all lived through all these events. We've all lived through those events, either directly or indirectly. So it's not going to be that far off from any of us as far as connecting to the story and the subject matter. As an organization, how did you decide that you wanted to commission something? And how did you go about doing that? Right. So Opera Columbus has been around 38 years. Long history here in Columbus. This is only the third new opera commission world premiere that is in the history of this company. And now the company kind of took on a new, they did, we took on a new mission um, about six years ago and branded it about a year ago to be very, our goal is to be innovative and forward thinking and evolve the art form. And I don't see how that is possible to do unless you're creating new work as well as, you know, performing productions that are a little more on the traditional side, but we do everything at the twist. So nothing really is traditional. It's not a word that's usually associated with the company right now. World Premiere, if you're going to be a relevant company today, you need to push every boundary you can. And new music is a way to do that. Not only that, but the composer is a woman. And were we to name the top five women composers and compare them to how many men composers are out there today, there are programs supporting women composers because there's so few. So that is also something that we kept in mind. And this particular composer, Corinne Fujiwara, mm-hmm. has local roots or local connections, right? She used to be involved with Pro Musica? Yes, she played with them. And her husband was the executive director of Pro Musica at one time. Isn't that crazy? And she's also plays in Carpe Diem String Quartet. So it's kind of neat. She wrote the orchestration with musicians in mind that she knows their strengths and how they play and how they'd sound. So what a unique situation for a composer, I think. And how did you connect with Stephen in the first place? From what I've read, it sounds like he's a bit of a heavy hitter as well. I mean, he worked with Leonard Bernstein on A Quiet Place. Yeah, he's a heavy hitter. I've known Stephen my whole career. So I met him in New York as a singer. He was my acting coach uh, when I was at Manhattan School of Music way back when. And I obviously had a great respect throughout my career for him. And, you know, he went on, he's at the Met. He's actually, he was at the Met then, but, you know, he's directed shows on Broadway. Like you said, he created an opera with Leonard Bernstein. He's got three shows at the Met this season alone. So, like I said, when we started to transform the opera company here, I wanted one of the elements to be focusing on young talent and emerging artists. And I wanted Opera Columbus to be the place that gave the break to someone who really needed it. They just needed a break. And so I went back to Stephen, who was running the program at the Juilliard School that I was a part of when I was a young artist, and said, can we get these young artists to leave New York and be able to do leading roles in Columbus? Because it's hard when you're at Juilliard. There's just a handful of singers there. You're learning new roles in front of the New York Times in front of agents, it's kind of hard to hone your craft 
publicly. So I thought we'd be a great partner for them. And he completely agreed. And we have a formal collaboration with the Juilliard School because of that. And that's been going on a couple of years. And around that time, I said, and would you write a libretto for this opera we're doing? You know, he was like phone call number one. And he said, yes. And here we are. Now, do you have any idea? I know you said he did extensive historical research for this. Do you know where he looked to find out and to learn more about this? Was he going through all the pages of the dispatch? <laughs> no doubt he went through all the pages. Of, I, I mean, I'm sure he did, actually. He uncovered every rock. He tipped over everything. He worked with the Historical Society, WOSU. His own research is a great book called The Great Columbus Flood of 1913. So he read that, and he's actually from Wadsworth. No his, way. Ohio. His last name is Wadsworth. He goes, doing all this research, I realized, oh my gosh, my own heritage is from Ohio and was affected by the flood that went through the Midwest. So that was a little creepy. But it's amazing how the pieces have come together. Now, you also mentioned uncovering young talent, not right. to put you on the spot. But if you were to look at, you know, the people who are involved in this production, is there anyone that you would point to, especially and say, you're going to hear that name someday down the line? You know what? I could point to many. I know not just saying that for real. Like we took great care in casting this opera. There are some more mature artists in the show, but there's one gal who I just love. She plays a little girl in the opera. And I heard her when I was in Cincinnati. She's not that far off from being a recent grad from Cincinnati Conservatory of Music. And this is an amazing opportunity for her. She is exquisite in this role. But you know, every one of them shines so much. The way that Corrine wrote the music is she had a separate voice type for every character, so it even highlights their voices more than normal. But yeah, we're not going to be able to afford to bring them back at some point. Now, I understand that collaboration in general has been something that you've been really trying to focus on, and you guys collaborate with Pro Musica with this production. Talk a little bit about that. Is this your first collaboration with them as a group? It is. So we've been dying to do this, Janet and I. We've been friends for years. I actually sang with Pro Musica a couple times. So this is something we've wanted to do a long time, but it is true. I feel like the way of the arts going forward, whether it's visual arts or dance or any kind of instrumental music and voice is going to blend more and more. And the silos of our industries are going to become very blurry. That's kind of what I see going forward. And it only makes the art richer. It makes fundraising a lot easier. And uh, we appeal to a broader audience when we do that. Anything else coming up? I know you've got Opera Swings Jazz. We got Opera Swings Jazz. We have a gala coming up March 7, and Janet has a soiree coming up, so I'm going to do a little plug for her. And yeah, so we have a gala that we're launching next season. That's on March 7th. And then Opera Swings Jazz, talk about a collaboration. We have Byron Stripling is going to be the musical director on that show with Jazz Arts Group. We've got some of the most incredible singers performing on that show and some ballroom dancing. So it's going to be a rowdy night. It's going to be lots of fun. People can grab their drink and go to their seat and have a good time. Very different from the flood in the sense that (laughs) there's not too much to take seriously there. It's just fun. And do you have any other commissions that are maybe in the works or that you're laying the groundwork for? Well, we're laying the groundwork right now. I have to tell you, Janet and I have been holding our breath for a few years because we're like, let's see if we can do this. We don't bankrupt our companies. (laughs) You know, the city wraps their arms around it. And I have to say, all of that has way exceeded our expectations. So I have newfound courage on commissions, and I will definitely do it again. You've sort of touched on this in our conversation so far, but I'm curious as to how you, what kind of strategy you have for drawing and attracting newer, younger 
patrons to the opera scene? So this is constantly in my mind every day of my job. And I'm always thinking about that. For instance, the opera, The Flood, it's just over an hour. It's in English. There's surtitles. You can keep your phone on. You can take pictures. You can use social media during the show. You can bring your bourbon to your seat. I encourage people to applaud when they want to. I encourage them to dress whatever makes them feel comfortable. Sometimes I wear a cocktail dress. Sometimes I wear jeans for that very reason because it's we're so focused on, you know, anybody should be able to come off the street, sit in here and feel not out of place. So we make a big point of that. We do a little curtain speech every show and we say, okay, everybody, you're in the right place. Trust me, it doesn't matter what you're wearing <laughs> or that you don't know when to clap or this is your first opera or even if it's your 50th opera, you know, it, this company is for everyone here. And I know that this isn't unique to the flood, but take an opportunity here, make your pitch for why people should be interested in opera. There's so many forms of art out there. I think that's probably the most intimidating mm-hmm. to your average audience person. What are they missing if they haven't gone so far? Well, so many people have an idea of what opera is if they've never seen it. I mean, I've heard this story, I cannot tell you, probably thousands of times having been in this business for so long. You know, opera singers come in every color, every shape, every age, and we involve every art form. So you've got sets and costumes, you have orchestra, we have film often. We can put electric guitar in with a symphony, which we did last season. It's not what you think. There's ballet, there's modern dance, there's sometimes women play men. It's just, we shake it all up because art is so expansive. It's not just one thing. And so I, I just try to encourage people, I promise you, it's not what you think. Buy a $25 ticket, check it out, you won't regret it. And if it's anything like last year, you might even see a penguin or a camel, <laughs> who knows? The camels were insane. Yeah, you never know, you never know. No camels this year, but you know, things can change. So most importantly, the question that I've wanted to ask you since we spoke to set up the podcast was, can you shatter a glass using just your voice. No. Isn't that a bummer? You can't. Have you tried? <laughs> yes, of course I've tried. <laughs> and I don't even sing that loud, but I know very loud singers, very high-pitched singers, you just can't. But it is a great myth. That one I actually, I hate dispelling because that's a good one. Well, we appreciate you not breaking our windows here in the studio, <laughs> but for coming in here today and share this with us. We're really looking forward to checking it out. Thank you. All right, take care. And thank you all for listening to Life in the 614. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Google Play Music. We hope to have you back next week. Until then, keep enjoying your own life in the 614. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.